but uh, a little warm. Well, I want to get back to this series on honoring God, and we've been addressing that office or that position he has as the creator, because that is one of the fundamentally most important offices he has. I want to close this out today, this particular section, uh, but there are some very, very important things for us to consider in terms of God being the creator. Now, we finished up in Isaiah last time, but I want to go to just a few more Old Testament references before getting to the New, and that is in Jeremiah. Uh, here, let's go to Jeremiah 10. And let's see, down about verse 10. The Eternal is the true God. He is the living God, an everlasting King. At His wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings with rain and brings forth the wind out of his treasures. So he's saying that God, the true king, is in this end time going to make his presence known and that all gods that mankind might have are going to disappear and vanish before him. He made the heavens and the earth, and he is going to give it quite a shaking. Now, we have rumors here and there in articles and on the Internet and so on, uh, talk radio about how man is getting to where he can control the weather, he can cause uh, volcanic activity and earthquakes and so on. And... There is a possibility that some of that could be true on a limited basis. Uh, as science learns more and more about this earth and some of the powers that God created on it, it is not beyond my uh, ability to imagine that man might be able in a small way to begin to do some of those things. It's not my point to argue that. There is no argument. No matter what power man thinks he can begin to, to generate, I said degenerate, that's probably a good slip of the tongue, or to generate, on this earth, God is going to shake it to the core. So no matter how smart they think they are, God is going to take this back to the essentials, the basic fundamentals of where it all started, where it all came from. So looking to God as the creator is not something that maybe we should do once in a while or the man needs to take cognizance of in any small way, but God is going to make it so very, very clear there is no question of who is in charge. Satan is the prince of the power of the air for right now, but that does not mean that God did not create it all. And he will, in his time, step in and prove that to mankind. 
whose side do we want to be on as this thing begins to shape up? When he stands and starts doing his work, it's going to get very, very unpleasant for mankind. Verse 14, he says, Every man is brutish in his knowledge. In other words, we really don't know much. We think we're pretty smart with our scientific world today, don't we? Mankind is going to clone men, and they're going to figure out a way to make us live forever, give us eternal life. We're going to freeze us and then unfreeze us later. Even Ted Williams had... This is how far they take it. He had his head frozen, the baseball player, so that when men find out how to resurrect, his head will be intact. And they can stick it on a body, I guess, and bring him back to life. That's how far it's already been taken. And he died, what, 20 years ago? 10 or 15, I don't know. Been a while. That's how smart they think they are. And that's how much trust a baseball player put in science that they could resurrect. Why doesn't somebody just open the Bible and admit that God created mankind and made us to die and that he can resurrect and make us live? They don't want to admit that, do they? They'll do anything to keep from looking to God as the creator and as the resurrector. They'll look to science to solve the problems. Go down to the Gulf of Mexico and see how well they're doing, among other things. So he says, every man is brutish or infantile in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image. We got our idols of medical science and other kinds of science, and those are the things we look to on this earth. His molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, and the work of errors, they're temporary, they're going to go away when the true God of creation shows who he is. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the former of all things, and Israel is the rod of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So God is going to save a portion of Jacob out of this to do what? To show that he is God. We have seen that in many, many scriptures. The eternal of hosts is his name. Then he says in verse 17, Gather up your wares, your things, out of the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. He says this land is going to be shaken to its very foundations. So gather your things up and get away from it. Get out of it. Get as far from it as you can. For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of the land at this once, and will distress them that they may find it so. Now the very earth itself, because of the pollutions that we have created, is beginning to sling us out. And there are articles being written about how mankind cannot long survive on the earth because the forces that are there that we have polluted, misused, and abused will turn around and bite us and kill us all. They're beginning to see 
that what we've done to our environment is deadly. And if we keep on in the path we are going, it will itself destroy us. Is that why God says he will use volcanoes and earthquakes and various natural causes? The very God that mankind is beginning to worship is the God that will be very fundamental in punishing mankind and showing who God is. And the earth will be a great part of how what God uses to sling us out as human beings and show that we really are pretty infantile in our understanding. Let's go on to Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah 27. Uh, here, what do I want? About... Uh, Verse 4, And commanded them to say to their masters, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus shall you say to your masters, Here is the answer that you need to have handy. Here's what you will say to those who will try to rule over you. This is good advice for us today, when there are those who would, by their desire, and will, by their uh, power, rule over mankind. Here's the answer. I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are upon the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it to them whom it seemed meet to me. And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. God is saying that he is in control of the politics of this world. He has given the power to the powers that be. Now it's going to turn on them. But he said, all right, you want to rule? You want to rule your way? Go for it. I'll put you in charge. Now let's see what you do with it. He says in Daniel 4 that he puts over the nations the basest of men. He is the one that sees to it that we have lousy leadership in the nations of the world right now. And we do have lousy leadership, the basis of men. But when somebody says, well, this leader over here is such and such and such and such, and they badmouth him, that's generally true because God has said so. That's the kind of people that he has put in charge. Because he is going to make a point. And it is going to be very, very pointed. So he's put these people there to go ahead and wreck and ruin and misrule, abuse mankind and the earth on which we live so that it will make an even greater contrast when God himself takes a hand, takes charge, and stops what is now going on on the face of the earth. He wants a clear-cut decision made. He wants there to be no question who is in charge. Do we equivocate? Do we sit on the fence sometimes? Do we give too much credence to this world and the people in it and its society and culture? Do we allow ourselves to be sucked into it here and there? 
or do we run from it? God says, flee from sin. You know what you do when you flee? Were you ever a kid and got scared in the night and tried to make it home before they got you? You were fleeing. Your heart was filled with terror. Your feet ran faster than ever they had before. We cozy up to this world way too much still, my brothers and sisters. Way too much. We imbibe of the degenerate things that are all around us. I don't know when we will get the message. I hope we get it before God leaves us in it. And we have to learn like the rest of the world is going to learn. Now I will lift my voice and cry aloud and spare not. We still eat the junk. We still watch the junk. We still hear the junk. When will we get it? I've been yelling about this for years. It's hard for all of us. When will we get the picture and do something about it? There's going to come a day when it's too late. Well, thankfully God is merciful. Thankfully he's forgiving. And we can ask for forgiveness, but he also expects change. The problem is human beings change, it seems, so very, very slowly. Because we have our want-tos, we have our desires, we have our vanity, our pride, our human nature, our selfishness. We don't want to give it up. We just don't want to. We vowed to. We made a vow to God at baptism. But it's hard for us to keep our vows. And God says that he will come down hard on those who will not follow their vows. You make a, God, a vow to God, it is a very, very serious thing. And we all have done that. We're baptized. But he is going to turn this thing around and he is going to destroy everything we see before us. Now, if God is so angry he's going to destroy it, shouldn't that begin to penetrate into our minds that if God hates it that much, why do we still go there and do that? Why? We know that the junk that we eat the processed stuff, whether it's out of a fast food place or a grocery store or wherever, is not good for us. We know it's causing diabetes and cancer and heart disease and a plethora of other things. And we are degenerating rapidly. We know that. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to do anything about it? And then we ask God to heal us when our bodies begin to break down. Now, do we have some responsibility to be just stewards of what we have been given? Or do we just say, well, it won't matter. This won't matter. That won't matter. It isn't a big deal. Don't make a big deal of it. Well, 
this society and this culture, God is going to make a big deal out of. It is going to be such a big deal that when it's over, over 90% of the people on this earth will be dead. Hard to imagine. That's what it's going to take to get people to recognize that he is the creator of heaven and earth and that things will be done his way on this earth. That's what it will take. Seems like overkill, doesn't it? Well, talk to people. See what they have to say. They don't want to listen to things about the true God. That's why I guess he says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Because even the best we do, we're still not going to get it all right, are we? We're not going to reach perfection. But still in all, we have to understand the standard. We have to understand where God is going and get as close to the way he is as we can possibly get. And it is not easy. How does God describe us? You know, we would like to see all our problems solved, wouldn't we? We'd like to see great blessings come. Well, I, didn't, I won't go there, but there are scriptures which say that we are like a woman in travail, here to give birth to the way of God and Christ and his way of life on this earth. And it is very, very painful, very difficult, isn't it? Now, if he describes us, and I think he's talking about us here and now, as a woman in travail with birth pains, wanting to give forth but can't seem to deliver and only brings forth air, as he puts it in one place, push and push, and that's all you can manage, then... Life right now is difficult, and God intended it to be difficult, and it will continue to be difficult until, in one day, he forgives our sins, turns his face to us, and brings all the blessings that we read about in Isaiah and other places down to us. It is going to be hard until that point. We might as well understand that, know that, and face that. Through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Anything that you don't have to work for isn't worth much, is it? Easy come, easy go. We came to this land, and it was pretty much easy come, wasn't it? The natural resources were here. The weather was good. Crops could be grown. There was plenty of minerals in, there were plenty of minerals in the earth. It was relatively easy to build this nation for the great power that has become on the face of the earth. But now, since it came easy, we're destroying it very easily and very quickly. Easy come, easy go does not work. It's got to be hard to do and then appreciated because of the work and the sweat and the travail that we have to put into it. God said that. And... If we begin to doubt him because we see troubles, trials, and difficulties, then we just don't understand his word. 
we don't understand what he's doing. Now, he puts troubles and trials and allows them to be with us and on us that we might learn from them, that we might say, oh, I need to get closer to God. And he is going to do the same with the world, only in a very sudden and very destructive manner, whereas he's allowing us space and time to repent, space and time to overcome. And we need to come once a week and be reminded of these things. Let's go to Jeremiah 32 now. Here is the situation where Jeremiah was in prison, and there was some intervention, and when he was let out, he was told to go and buy a field that was in Anatoth, and that he had the right of redemption there. Uh, We are the only ones on the face of the earth, that is, the greater church of God, who have any right of redemption. Christ is our Redeemer, and only those true Christians who have been called out of this world have right to redemption. Now, as we go through this very quickly, we've been here before, but I want to make a point, and that is this. I do not believe that the name of this little village we have here, Anatoth, was chosen or given frivolously. I do believe that God guided the name of it and caused it to be put here. There are lots and lots and lots of names and places in the Bible that we could have said, well, that seems to be a good one, let's do that. This is the one that seemed to fit at the time, and I do believe that is the case. I believe God is giving us the opportunity to show the redeemed a way to go, of what is right. So God made a very particular point here. You do have the right of redemption. It's yours if you will buy it, if you will purchase it, if you will take it. God has brought us here. He's named this village Anatoth. He showed us some truths that others yet do not know because he's allowing us to be the forerunners, the ones to come ahead to prepare a way. And therefore, those that he will begin to redeem from this earth and to redeem the uh, remnant of the world, I think would come probably here if we do our job right. I have no doubt, though, that we've been offered this opportunity. Then I knew, he says in verse uh, 8, that this was the word of the eternal. So he bought the field. Now notice the other message that is in here, or another message. He gave evidence that he had bought, just as we present evidence from God's word, that he is God and that we are his people. So there has to be proof, there has to be evidence of what is. So we are here to produce evidence. Isaiah 41 says that the end time people will be God's witnesses that he is God. We are to present that evidence. Verse 15, For thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall yet or shall be possessed again in this land. Now God is going to tear it all apart, but out of the midst of the destruction of this country, 
there is going to be a small enclave, a small area by comparison, where God will yet again allow villages to be built and he will protect them because they are the remnant redeemed from this earth come to show that God is God. That's why we're here, brethren. That's what this is all about. Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase to uh, Barak, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Eternal, saying, now this, I think, is very instructive. Once he got the deal done, the witness there that this field was of God, for God, and by God, he made a prayer. What type of prayer was it? There are many different kinds of prayers you can pray. This is a timely prayer directed in the right way at the right time, the way God would want it for a special purpose. Ah, eternal God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands. Now that in itself is very interesting. There are not millions of Christians on this earth, true Christians. There are not even hundreds of thousands. There are a few thousands. A remnant of the church, I think, based on an educated guess, considering several scriptures, would be maybe seven to 12,000 people who will be the faithful remnant that God will use to show that he is the creator of heaven and earth. He does things in a small way. You remember Gideon. Thousands and thousands were reduced down to 300. So they could not, by any stretch of the imagination, say, well, this is something we did because we're, we're strong and powerful and we're a great army. No, he reduced it down where there was no question it was God's work. But when he does this thing at the end, it's going to be showing by thousands that he is God. And it is loving kindness that he puts down on only a few thousand here at the end. And recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the eternal of hosts is his name. You see the message that God is beginning to show through Anatot, through the evidence that God will show that he is God and that we can be his witnesses? Do you begin to comprehend better why God puts us through a lot, a lot of trials, troubles, difficulties, situations, to teach us to look to him? Because we're here to show the rest of the world that we do look to him and that they should go and do the same thing. If we do not look to God for everything in life that counts, how can we be true, honest, and powerful witnesses of who he is? He has to put us through the paces. We have to go through the training. We have to become that witness. And it is not easy, because every last one of us here has difficulty putting God first in our lives, all day long, every day. 
But we will. We will not give up when things get tough. We know what God is doing. Isn't it nice to know what he is doing and why he is doing it? And then when you have trouble, you say, oh, I need to turn to God. I need to get closer to God. That's what this whole thing is about. This whole earth needs to get closer to God. And we're given first opportunity. How blessed we are. Going on about God, he says, Great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. A different way of saying, as Christ did, you reap what you sow. which have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and even to this day, and in Israel, and among other men, and have made you a name as at this day. You brought forth your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders. Doesn't he say in Zechariah 3 that there will be signs and wonders perpetrated by men here in the end time, at the time that the end time church begins to come together? God is going to do the same things now that he did then. This is all written for us. Let's see, let's go on out of verse 25. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy you a field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Is it not, or is it strange that God would say in Zechariah 2 that in the end, People would come out and build villages and there'd be men and cattle and each man would have his own vine and fig tree and that God's way of life would be honored and what he created this earth to produce will be produced there and after then all these horrible wars go on and man is finally humbled, he can set up the Garden of Eden over the whole earth. That's his goal and his purpose and he will work it. And he has chosen each of you here to be part of this end-time work. Let us never lose sight of that. It's so easy to get involved in our things and our lives and our feelings and our hurts and our troubles and our health and whatever it might be that we get wrapped up in and forget that we're going through this for a purpose to get us prepared to be witnesses to the whole world. That is an enormous responsibility. It is an enormous honor at the same time. But he did not choose mighty, noble, smart people. He just chose us. That's the way he said he does things. So I know it's astounding sometimes. We can't get big-headed because we're not very bright or very smart and we don't have very powerful will and willpower. We're just not that great. So we have to recognize that and be humble and at the, at the same time recognize what God can do through those who aren't much. That's the lesson we have to get. And then we're usable because we're not doing it out of our own vanity, pride, and ego. We're doing it out of humility and meekness, being tools in the hands of Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. So he said, buy the field for money 
And take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans, speaking of Jerusalem. The church is going to be given into the hand of the Gentiles, and this land is going to be. But God is going to preserve out a small group of people to show that he is God. This should be becoming abundantly clear to us. Let's go into chapter 51. Just pick up a couple things here. Jeremiah 50 and 51 are a tale of the destruction that is about to come upon this land, which is the Babylon of this world. The whole world is Babylon, but we specifically are the land of Babylon, ruled over by Babylons, even though we're Babylonians, even though we're Israelites. And through this story about what will happen to our land, there are references made to the church, to Israel, throughout both chapters 50 and 51, and how we relate to the Babylonian system around us. But here I want to pick it up. Uh, let's see, verse 13. O you that dwell upon many waters, many peoples, abundant in treasures, your end is come, and the measure of your covetousness. Uh, we have worshipped the almighty dollar. We have worshipped wealth. We have worshipped materialism. Those have been some of our gods. And that is one of the first gods that God is going to take away from us. There is coming a great financial crash. And we are seeing the beginnings of that already. It's almost upon us. In fact, it is crashing. It just hasn't hit bottom yet. Covetousness is one of the Ten Commandments. We have coveted and lusted after that which is temporal and human as opposed to seeking after God. And all of this that we have built and treasured will be taken away. The eternal of hosts has sworn by himself, can't get any higher than that, saying, surely I will fill you with men as with caterpillars. You've seen a plague of locusts or caterpillars or moths or whatever where they were just everywhere. He's going to send soldiers, armies, people into this land just like that. And they shall lift up a shout against you. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes the lightnings with rain. This sounds familiar. We just read it further back in the book. And brings forth the wind out of his treasures. And then he repeats again that every man doesn't have anything. They're all vanity. See again, it's repeated here. He is going to show the world that he's the creator. That's what this whole thing is really all about. Let's go to Hosea. Here, let's go to chapter 8. Quite a little is said in Hosea about Ephraim, our country today, and the false gods that we have and how God is upset. But in the light of what we are studying today, let's just look at a small part here in Hosea 8, uh, verse 13. They sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of my offerings and eat it, but the Eternal accepts them not. 
nor will he remember their iniquity and visit their now will he remember their iniquity and visit their sins they shall return to Mitzrayim that is into slavery again for Israel here's the problem here's the reason we're going into slavery for Israel has forgotten his maker our creator the one who made us what we are we as a people have forgotten him and build temples and Judah has multiplied its armies fenced cities defensed or military but I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour the palaces thereof one of the greatest prides of Americans is our military everything for the fighting boys who protect us what about Almighty God who said he would protect us if we would obey him you don't need armies if you trust God bottom line one of the first things we should do as a nation if we were to begin to turn to God would be to get rid of this band our, armor, our armies, our navies, our air force, our military that would show faith in almighty creator God of heaven and earth but we don't trust in him as a nation we put in God we trust on our money and that's our God and then we put our military out there and we depend upon it and that becomes our God God is going to destroy our military and he's going to take us into slavery so we will quit worshiping the armed forces and the money those are two of the first things that will go isn't that what it says in Revelation 17 and 18 in one day suddenly will come a destruction of your financial system and your trade and your military defense both will be gone those are two of our primary gods in this country oh we want to honor those who fight for us I understand the human emotion because young men are, and women are going over and dying for corporate America they're not dying to keep us free while our military sends them over there to protect oil and poppies we're over here destroying this country our leaders are against us they are the basest of people basest of men that God has put there and they are going down our military and our finances are going down and going down very quickly and suddenly when God wants to teach you who God is what does he do he removes your other gods it's that simple Hollywood and the music industry are going with it not going to exist anymore does that give you something to think about what God thinks of some of these things they're our idols they're what consume our time and our energy and our emotions so they will be taken away notice Jonah we don't go there very often but here was a very serious situation they were out in the boat Jonah was running from God did Jonah have an idol here did he put the God of heaven and earth above everything or did he rebel against something that God told him to do he put his desires of what would happen with Israel and with himself ahead of God's instruction he didn't trust God 
to know what he was doing. We just read that God's put Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentiles, in charge of our country. Do we trust him to have a purpose and a plan in mind? If God put them there, then we don't need to uh, run them down constantly and continually as we could tend to do. But recognize that God placed those powers there for a purpose. And he knows exactly what he's doing, even though we might ridicule the ones who are there. Sure, there's a lot wrong with them. And I just did say God is going to take them down. That's his business, though. It's not our job to look at them and constantly put them down, which we tend to do. I do it myself. I'm trying to curb that and cut it back and stop it. If God put them there, who am I to sit around and make jokes and ridicule? Jonah ran from what God had done. So these people cast lots to see, what, why are we in this storm? Why is our ship about to sink? Even they understood that there could be powers beyond just natural wind and waves. So they cast their lots and it hit Jonah. Verse 8, they said to him, Tell us, we pray you, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? That who in the world are you? This is coming on us because of you. <laughs> That's going to be said of us pretty soon. If we obey God and he blesses us, the whole world is going to blame us because they're having trouble. The message of Jonah is very, very much for today. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the eternal God of heaven which has made the sea and the dry land. And then they were scared of him. Didn't we just read in Jeremiah that God said that that is the witness that we are to give, that God is the God of heaven and earth? Now Jonah knew that. Jonah basically in his life lived that. But then even he had a problem with God and ran from God. But then when he was faced with the stark reality of the situation, <coughs> he admitted that he worshipped the creator God of heaven and earth. Now, that gives us a little clue of where we're going in the New Testament. And I'll mention it now, lest I forget it, I think I won't, but we worship, we worship the earth today. Mankind essentially does, and we're being channeled into that direction more and more day by day and week by week to worship Mother Gaia, the earth. God is going to turn that around. We will not be allowed to worship the earth. I believe that the new world religion and the new world government that is going to take over the beast power and all that the Bible talks about are going to focus on the earth as a source or as a, uh, an object of worship. We need to watch out for that. We need to look to the true God, the creator God of heaven and earth. Who is our mother? Is our mother the earth? That's easy to, for people to say. Rolls off the tongue real easy. Mother Earth, Mother Gaia. Is that our mother? 
Let's move on. Let's go to chapter 1 of John, the New Testament now. John 1. Now John spent years with Christ, was very, very close to him, and it came time to write a book about the life and times of the one we now know as Emmanuel, or Joshua with the Christ, however you want to put it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. shows that there were two beings, even though there are supposedly intelligent ministers that came out of worldwide who are trying to convince us in the journal and through debates and all kinds of things that there's only one being there, only one God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the very first thing that John, who was the closest one to Christ, pointed out is that Christ was the creator. He was there from the beginning, and he made it all. And nothing was made without him. So his office, or their office, as the creators, Christ being the one instrumental in actually doing the work, where John pointed. This is a very fundamental truth that we do not want to, by any means, get away from. Now let's go to Acts 4. See, we can go back and look at the creation story, can't we, in Genesis 1 once in a while, and think we have the picture. But isn't it interesting that the creation is talked about throughout the Bible, and not the creation itself as much as the Creator. The one who created is far greater than the creation. All right, here in Acts 4, uh, this is a story really that begins back in chapter 3, but it was right after the miracles began to happen at Pentecost, uh, after Christ ascended, and this lame man was healed. He sat by the pool for these years, and everybody knew him, knew that he was crippled, and so on. It was kind of hard to fake this one, wasn't it? Because everybody that came by saw him day in and day out, and they all knew who he was and what was wrong with him. But he was healed. And all the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rulers, did not like that at all. So I won't go through that, all of that, but that's the story that is behind what happens here. And when they took the apostles into to task about this, verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken to you more than to God judge you. We are told to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that lies within us the hope that he who created us in the beginning can resurrect us and give us eternal life. Eternal life is the hope that we have within us. Otherwise, we die and are dead like animals. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't help it. This has to come out. We can't hide. We can't hide this. God is God. 
And when he does something, we will show it. Now, tie that in with God saying that we have to be his witnesses in Isaiah 41, that he is God. We can't be shrinking violets. We cannot be wallflowers. We will need to stand up and be witness of the creator God of heaven and earth. Were Peter and John intimidated by these people who had what? The power to physically kill them. No, they were not. This is in me. It's what I am. It's what I believe. It's who we are. We know God is God, and we will proclaim it. And don't try to intimidate us because it won't work. Are you ready for this? It's coming. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. See, they stood up for God. They said this came from God. And the people said, wow. And what could the ruler say? If you kill them, then you're in trouble with the people. They might stone you. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. He had been there for many, many years, was over 40, and God healed him of never being able to walk. And being let go, they went to their own company, went back to the church, away from these leaders and people of the world, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So they told the church, the faithful, true ones, what had happened. Very interesting here. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, How did Jeremiah pray? What kind of prayer did Jeremiah give? Remember? It's almost recreated right here, word for word. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and at all that in them is who by the mouth of your servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the eternal and against his Christ. Those were historical things, and they are also prophetic things. And they were the things that these people thought of right then. Wow! The God of heaven and earth did this. And why will these... Heathens rage against God. Do you see a message there that needs to be taken to this world? Why do the heathen, heathen rage? Why do they do a vain thing? Why do they think they can rule this earth? It isn't going to happen. Yeah, the times of the Gentiles will be there for about 42 months. And it will cease. It will be over. It will be all done. No more of that. Are the kings of the earth beginning to stand up and the rulers gather together against the eternal and against his Christ? They're going to create a seed so powerful that even if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived by what is about to come. We who understand could so easily be deceived because this is going to be such a powerful thing. What is going to help keep us straight? We are going to honor God, the Creator, rather than that which is created around us, 
And I think that will be a very key ingredient in helping us understand the difference between the true God and the Antichrist to come. Keep that deep in mind, deeply in mind. All right, let's move on. Uh, Acts 14. And here, this is where Paul and Barnabas were before the Greeks, and their preaching caused them to think, the Greeks, that these people were gods. Verse 12, they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercury because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. They thought that this was Mercury, that this was Zeus or Jupiter, the Greek gods, coming to them. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out, saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach to you that you should turn from these vanities to the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Forget your gods, forget making gods of us, turn to the creator God of heaven and earth. Basic, fundamental, and powerful. This is bedrock, bottom line truth. And it is one of the key ingredients of everything that has to come. How many times did Ezekiel, for instance, say, and they shall know that I am the eternal? Over and over. I think that this will be a very, very significant part of the end time message to the world. It is just too common throughout. Uh, Acts 17. Here in verse 18 you have certain philosophers that encountered Paul, and some said, what will this babbler say? Other some, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preaches to them Emmanuel and the resurrection. So they had strange gods, and they thought that Paul had strange gods because he talked about a resurrection and a God who could not only create, but recreate. Has this long been a bone of contention between the world and the true God? It's been there all through history. This began in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? That's not God, I'm God. Don't listen to him, listen to me. What had they just been a part of? Creation. First thing that Satan used on them is God is not really the creator. You don't have to worship him. I'm here, follow me. This has been with us from time immemorial. They took him and brought him to Areopagus, with saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is? For you bring certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. 
You know, it's almost, if you preach to this world, the, the true things of God, it's almost like you're talking in tongues. They just don't get it. They don't understand it at all. What is this strange thing you're talking about? It was strange to you at one time, and it certainly was strange to your friends and relatives when you started following it, wasn't it? And still is. But it's in here. What happened to you and me is no different than what happened to Paul here. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or how to hear some new thing. Itching ears, wanting to hear of brand new scientific discoveries or how mankind is going to clone himself or, you know, whatever it is, then or today. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Don't walk under a ladder, you're afraid of Friday the 13th, and on and on and on. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. Now he, he says this, I think, a little tongue-in-cheek. He says, look, I just was walking into your city, and I see this plaque that's set up to the unknown God that you worship. Him declare I to you. Now was he declaring to them that which they thought was the unknown God? No, he's saying, you really don't know God. I'm going to declare to you a God that isn't un unknown to you, and it won't be your so-called unknown God. It's going to be the real unknown God. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is eternal, Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands. They had their temples full of their gods. And on and on it went. He is the one that determines the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He is the one that made heaven and earth. When it gets right down to it, if you're going to prove who God is, you have to go back to the Creator. This is becoming more and more significant. And it will come to a head right here in a few minutes. I want to go to a couple other scriptures first, and then we're going to hit a very important one that I'm leading up to. Colossians 1. Um, Verse 14, in whom we have, speaking of Christ, redemption, remember the redemption we read about in Anatoth, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Speaking of Christ, first of the first fruits, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So he says, if you're going to understand, you have to go back and realize where all power in the universe emanates. Here's where it comes from. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He's a key figure. 
Now let's go to Ephesians. And here I want chapter 3. Verse 8, Paul says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, he called himself the chiefest of sinners. What did I say a little earlier about how God uses the basest of people? Those who are not strong or mighty or smart or have strong willpower or anything else. The least of all saints is this among the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things through Emmanuel. To the intent, or for the purpose, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So God has given to the church the job of showing that he is the creator and what his manifold wisdom is, who he is, what he is. You and I, if we were Protestants or any other religion, or no religion on this earth, did not know the true God. He was an unknown God to us, just as like he was those Greeks on Mars Hill. We didn't know the true God. We worshipped, we knew not what. We did not keep the Sabbath. Most of us kept Sunday. At some point we learned that the Sabbath truly was the seventh day of the week. We weren't keeping the commandments, the fourth one in particular in that context. So we had to learn. Now let's go to Romans. And here I want chapter 1. This will put together a lot of the thoughts that we'll be considering today. Romans 1. This is about Christ. He gives the introduction here and declares him to be the son of the Almighty God. And he does his introductions and so on and wants them to be comforted. Uh, and then he says, verse 14, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as it in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. Now the gospel that God is God, and that he is going to come and rule, what is the gospel as Herbert Armstrong termed it? the good news of the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God started out on this earth in the Garden of Eden, did it not? And that kingdom was wrested away from mankind by Satan the devil. Now God has allowed him to hold forth as the ruler, the leader of this world, for about 6,000 years now. But he is going to intervene very soon and that is going to be destroyed. And his kingdom will be reestablished upon the earth. Now was that the kingdom of God in Genesis? I never really thought about it, but a kingdom consists of four things as we were taught. It has to have territory, subjects, laws, and a ruler. The Garden of Eden was the kingdom of God on earth. He was there with Adam and Eve. He gave them their, his, his laws 
and he gave them a certain territory to rule over, didn't he? Those are the four constituents of the kingdom. So it was all there and in place. But Satan took that kingdom over by deceiving man and woman. And we are what we are today as a result of that. So, he gives, he gives first to the Jew, also to the Greek, for therein, verse 17, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, God does not show himself daily to us, does he? Only a few times has Christ shown himself to individuals. Abraham, Moses, uh, the disciples. And then after he met with them, after he had gone to the heavens and came back, he said, I will not speak with you much henceforth. In other words, I'm going to stay there. I'm going to leave my word here for you, but I'm not going to have much to say to you until this whole thing comes to an end. And it's been that way since then. Now and again, he will reveal something via a dream or a vision or whatever, but not very often. And he does not come and speak face to face. He did with Paul after that, taught him three and a half years personally in the desert. But that was a rare occurrence. It hasn't happened much. So, we have to live by what? Faith. We don't see God. We don't hear God. We just have his testimony and his word. And what else do we have to give us faith and trust in God? What else, brethren, do we have? Let's read on. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, we were doing that. We had the truth, didn't we, essentially? But we were holding that truth, but in unrighteousness. We weren't doing the things that the truth told us to do. We were reading the Bible, we were examining the Scriptures, and yet we weren't following through. We weren't coming out of this world. We came that far out and then retained it. That's why I keep saying we have got to come on out of it. Because what we were doing before was not enough by any means. It was enough to get us spewed out of God's mouth. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it to them. Now how has God showed it? For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God made the heavens and the earth as a testimony that he is the creator God of all. So he says you must live by faith, and that faith is based on some things that you can see. You can't see him right now, but you can see what he did. Now my wife left some dinner on 
the cabinet the other day. And when I came in, I did not see her. She was nowhere to be seen. But there was dinner. I knew she had been there. She had made dinner. I don't think anybody else came in there and did that. didn't happen that way. She did it. I didn't need to see her to know that. I needed to see what she'd done. Now that is the exact same proposition God gives to us. We don't have to see him. The invisible things of God we take on faith and walk in belief because we see what he has done around us. This creation we live on is moot testimony that God is the creator. He had to have been here or this would not exist. And what does mankind do? Our society today is pushing evolution on us just as hard and as fast as they possibly can. They are trying to prove to us that there is no God who created the earth, that there was a big bang, or that whatever theory they might come up with at the moment, and that we crawled out of the womb of Mother Earth on the sea as jellyfish and grew legs over time and grew brains and became human. You think actually anybody would believe that? Isn't that the stupidest thing you just about ever heard? And yet, the world believes it because they've been told it over and over and they don't want to admit there's a God because if you admit there really is a God, then He might have rules that you have to keep. And if you don't want to keep His rules, you want to block out the idea that He is even there. Do teenagers sometimes want to block out dad and mom? Get the eye roll and the head turned? You have authority in their lives. And sometimes they don't like that. So they try to block out that you were there. And that's why you get stonewalled. They don't want to do what you're telling them. They don't want to accept it. Their very nature rebels against it, and there's where the eye roll comes from. That's the cause of it. Now, I'm not here to speak against teenagers. It's just that we are all human. And what we experience as parents with our children is what God is experiencing with the whole world. Trying to ignore that he is there. Oh, there's a God? Nah. We just crawled out of the ocean. Or sort of washed up on the beach, I guess. You didn't have anything to crawl with at the time. He says, The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. We understand God is the creator by looking at the universe and the earth around us. Now, is it important for us to enjoy and appreciate the creation 
that we have. I have found, personally, that one of the quickest ways for me to get my perspective back, if I begin to lose focus and begin to doubt this or that or get discouraged or whatever, is I can go out to the mountains or the trees, backyard for that matter, and look up at the stars and the heavens, and I begin to get my focus back. I look at what God has made and say, this couldn't be here if you weren't there. That is bedrock. That's where we need to look. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's happened to this world. Quit looking to God as Creator, and their vain and foolish heart is dark. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Looking to science of any kind as having the answers, as having the explanation of how we came to be here. And they consider themselves, oh, so wise. They have degrees backed up from all these different colleges. And how smart they are. And when they even get on television or something and talk to you, it's kind of a, well, you know, you're not very smart out there, but I have the answers. I was listening to one on a history channel the other night about the Templars coming over here. And, oh, he was so, so intellectual. And he had to say each word just right so that you might believe just because of the way he looked and sounded that he must have all the answers. It was funny. He's a fool. And exchange the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So now we worship Boo the Owl and the Egyptians worship the crocodiles. The American Indians worship the grizzly bears and things that crawl around on the earth instead of the God of creation. They have no clue who is God. How are you going to tell them? If people do not accept this book as God's Word, there is, you can't even have a conversation, can you? They wear the, you know, the American Indians wear their ponytail. Well, you can go back here and show them. God says a man should have his hair cut short. Are they going to accept that or are they going to worship what they call grandfather and the owl and the grizzly bear? and the snake and whatever particular one they pick. The medical profession has picked the serpent to worship, put it on their staff. So we have a movement today to worship the animals, and it is possible to get punished more for killing an animal inhumanely than to kill a human being. It's gotten that bad. We have PETA and all the Sierra Club and on and on ad nauseum, the Audubon Club and all these things promoting the created as those objects of worship instead of the creator. Let's see that. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts 
to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So he says this whole thing of worshiping animals and eating just carrots and celery and homosexuality are all tied together. So as we see it increasing more and more in our society that we're to be vegetarians, we're not to kill the animals that are more important than we are, they also become more and more twisted and they begin to see things in a totally unnatural way and that's why we have the gay parades and why states now are recognizing same-sex marriages? I don't think so. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creation more than the Creator who is blessed forever. And Paul says, Amen to that. It was a movement that was going on even then, and today we see it all around us. It's promoted day and night. We have a great heroine in Hollywood. Heroine might be the right word. She's on drugs and booze. She's openly gay. And everybody's so worried that she's going to go to jail. She ought to be stoned. And I don't mean stoned with drugs. There's such a great outcry because the Iranians were going to stone a woman taken in adultery. Oh, this is such a horrible thing to stone her. What, do we need to go back here and read? We take fornication and adultery and queerdom in our nation to the point that we think they should not be punished. It's accepted. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. God made male and female and wanted them to get married and have children and replenish the earth. And now we've got... Don't even get me started. They worship the creation more than the Creator, and they just get weirder and weirder. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is filthy, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was do them. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to those things which are unfitting, inconvenient, and so on. And then it lists a thing of sins here that are basically just acceptable things in our nation today. We see them on TV. We hear about them in our songs. We write books about them. That's the stuff we accept and imbibe, and we accept sin with our eyes and with our ears. And he says we should be ashamed not only that they do it, but not have anything to do with them as they do it. But we count it as entertainment today. It's vile to God, but to us it's entertainment. How sick we are. Let's go to Romans 8 and see what the result of this is. You don't look to the Creator, you look to the created and you just get weirder and weirder, brethren. 
we need to focus on the Creator and give Him the honor that He deserves. Here he talks in chapter 8, it's a very powerful chapter in Romans, about the Spirit of God and walking that way instead of the natural, normal, human way which we see all around us and which so easily besets us. Verse 13, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify or destroy the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So you have to have the Spirit of God to be called a son of God in the New Testament, the New Covenant. We have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And then he talks about how we're heirs and joint heirs together. Now he, in verse 18 he hits on something I mentioned early. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So they were having the same trials, troubles, and tribulations in the early New Testament church that we're having today. What has come upon us is nothing strange or unusual in history. God's people have always been tried and tested to the point of death, even. And not just to the point of death, but have often been killed, even. Do we believe it, or do we not? Anyway, verse 21, Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We're going to be used to recreate to reestablish the kingdom of God on the earth, to make it peaceful, to make it happy, to make it productive, to make it healthful, all those things. For we know that the whole creation groans and prevails in pain together until now. And if the creation was groaning then, we've polluted it a whole lot more since then, and now it is really groaning and travailing. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption that is the redemption of our body. And we're saved by hope. So God gives testimony here that the whole creation is in pain and in suffering, and that the things that are going on on it are unnatural and not right. And until he comes and destroys what is here and rebuilds it, it's going to be this way. Now, let's make something clear. I mentioned earlier, back in Galatians 4, God is our Father. Who is our mother? Is it the earth? That's what they're trying to sell us. Mother Earth. I beg to differ. Galatians 4... Here, let's go down to verse 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. The earth is not our mother. If we speak of Mother Earth, we speak, we misspeak. This is not Mother Earth. 
Jerusalem from above is our mother. Now this has not always been, but let's read on for a moment. For it is written, Rejoice, you barren that bears not. Break forth and cry, you that travail not. For the desolate has many more children than she which has an husband. So he's speaking here of the church, which is the mother of us all. Jerusalem above in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 is spoken of as the church. We've seen that many times. But let's notice just a couple of quick ones. Um, Isaiah 50. Now the church is our current mother, but we had a mother before that, and we didn't listen. Uh, Isaiah 50. Get back there here in a minute. Thus says the Eternal, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Uh, behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves, and for your transgression is your mother put away. Who did he divorce? Ancient Israel. So God in the past likened the physical nation of Israel to our mother. We were to look to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as our fathers on the flesh, and to Israel as our mother, from whence we were born. We'll see that there. Let's see, verse 12 adds a little bit. No, it doesn't. There isn't verse 12. Where did I get that? Uh, let's, let's see it in Hosea 2 and verse 2. You remember the story here about Hosea being told to take a wife of whoredoms. He says, Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Rohama, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and so on. And God did ultimately strip Israel naked. We were punished, and then we were given this promised land again, here at the end, after it had been barren for many generations. And we have messed it up. Now he is about to give us the original Jerusalem, and we'd better not mess it up. We had better go there with character, walking in the Spirit, and be the people of God. We cannot take the adulteries of our first mother Israel with us there. We have to change. We have to be different. God will not tolerate fornication and adultery and lying and cheating and stealing and Sabbath-breaking in the new Jerusalem that he is about to establish where the old originally was. We have to be clean that bear the vessels of the eternal, Isaiah 52. Ancient Israel was our mother. Now the church, Jerusalem from above, is our mother. He's cast in that light. The church is not between us and God. The church is here is the mother to direct the children to the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. That's what I'm here today doing, is acting as a mother to you. Not to be between you, and you have to answer me before you answer to God. No, I'm to the side. I'm pointing you directly to your Father in heaven who created you in the first place. That is what God says. So when they talk about Mother Earth, just blow it off. It isn't true. It's not our mother at all. It never has been. 
in ancient times or today, either one. So forget worshiping Gaia, because it is going to be put ahead of us and in front of us and laid on us. Now, I think I got into this on Pentecost, but I'll summarize here in just two or three minutes. But God had a time of rest for mankind when the kingdom of God was first established on the earth in Adam and Eve. And that got messed up very, very quickly. And God had created the Sabbath as a memorial of creation. It is a memorial of that restful, beautiful, very good earth that God had created. And ever since we messed it up, we've lived in squalor and filth and war and poverty and disease and trouble. Now, he has given us the weekly Sabbath to keep as a memorial of creation. And Hebrews 4 goes through that and shows that the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, is a memorial of the former creation and looks forward to the coming creation of the kingdom of God once again on the earth. The Sabbath is a key doctrine because it tells us of the creation of the past and who is the creator, and it points to the one who will recreate those conditions again upon this earth. If you worship Sunday or Wednesday, you lose that. You forget that. You don't understand the plan of God. We don't worship the Sabbath. We worship the one who made it. The Seventh-day Adventists essentially worship the Sabbath and forget the God who is the creator and the healer and on and on. Just like the world worships Mother Earth, the Adventists, for the most part, worship the Sabbath. No, it's only a memorial of God, the Creator. We have to get it right. So as we keep the Sabbath week by week, what is it to remind us of? God, the Creator. It is a day to take some time away from the pressures, the jobs, the things of our lives that we can do six days a week, but that seventh day is set aside for us to turn to the God and memorialize the creation of the past and look forward to the creation of the future. It is a time to see the invisible God through the visible things that he has made and walk forth through the next week in faith. It's a good time to look at the trees and the flowers and your cat or your dog and marvel at the God who could make these things. Honor your Creator.